News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How do Canadians feel about the idea of another lockdown, especially in light of the Omicron variant? Well, we have somebody we can ask about that, actually. Daryl Bricker joins us now, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, because he's been polling on this issue. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. Now, I'm very surprised that you found that 55% of people say they still support another lockdown. Yeah, they do. They're pretty serious about uh, about dealing with uh, with uh, the virus as it uh, you know comes back in new waves, but fighting back each of these waves. But I will say that this is a pretty significant decline from where people were back in July, uh, the last time we asked this, where 69% were supporting lockdown. So I think what we're seeing now in the numbers is that there's a certain amount of fatigue, but also questioning about whether or not this is the best way to deal with things. And particularly given that the, the rate of vaccination is so high and people feel a bit more protected these days, asking them to stay home the way that they were uh, uh, doing so when they weren't vaccinated is a, is, a, is a tougher sell, I'd say, this time. Okay, so even though it's still 55%, you're saying that's, that's a big difference from what you saw a couple of months ago, because you've been doing this every couple of months. Yeah, we've been doing it on a regular basis. And when you go back right to the start of this uh, this whole pandemic, we were getting numbers for shutdowns in the 80s. So um, this time around, we're seeing that there's a, not so much resistance as I would say questioning. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of mixed information here. Is it, you know, is it a less severe virus? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all happened really quickly. Uh, it's not like it's, uh, it's been ramping up over a period of time. It's happened all really quickly. And also people, a large percentage of Canadians, you know, in the 80%, over 80% in most parts of the country, are vaccinated, they do feel less vulnerable than they did in previous circumstances. Oh, that is really interesting then that the vaccination is making such a difference. So did that change at all, like depending on what province you were in? Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. Uh, for example, if you're in Quebec, you're more supportive of a shutdown. But if you're in Alberta, for example, only 44% of people are telling us that they support a shutdown. Really? Okay. And so how are Canadians feeling about Omicron and the impact it could have on Canada? Well, they certainly believe 82%, which looks more like the numbers related to a shutdown before, which is showing the subtlety of uh, of a public opinion. 82% say that this is going to delay our return to normal. And one of the things that they're definitely going to do is restrict their travel. 80% of Canadians are telling us they're uh, not going to be traveling in the near future. Right. But you did see some who were saying they're, they're going to travel next year. Yeah, and that partially underscores this idea that, you know, we go through this in waves. It's not like a long constant. So people know that we're going to come out of this at some point. So they're, they're getting used to the cycle. They're getting used to living with the disease. And their expectation, whether it's correct or not, is that it's not going to last for the entire 2022. So at some point that year that they're going to travel, and that's 37% of people telling us that they're going to do that, oh. which, by the way, is much higher than we were seeing in previous stages. Really? So again, do you think it's an impact of people being vaccinated? Yeah, I think that there's, as I said before, people are learning to live with it. Uh, when you look at the number of people in Canada who've actually become uh, you know, infected or lost a family member, for example, as a result of, uh, of, of COVID, it's, it's not universal. <laughs> so it's still something that's out there, doesn't necessarily having a personal impact on your own health. And now that you've been vaccinated, you feel to a certain extent empowered. Whether that's correct or incorrect, that's how people are feeling. 
I also found interesting here is how people feel about public health officials. So if you were to ask people about how they feel about politicians, seems like a different answer when it comes to public health officials. Yeah, uh, public health officials ranking much higher, but I will say lower than they ranked before. Oh, so you know they're bleeding a bit of credibility as we, as we go through this. As we go through this too, uh, so the prime minister, for example, just looking at a politician in terms of his numbers, from when we tested this last time, he's down five points. Uh, although I will, the most interesting finding I found in all that leadership uh, information mm-hmm. was that uh, Joe Biden does about ten points better in Canada than Justin Trudeau does in Canada. <laughs> In Canada, yeah. Okay, that's ironic as well. But yet health officials poll higher than politicians. They certainly do. So we asked about uh, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, and she's at 64. The prime minister is at uh, at 49. But public health officials were much higher than this when we were at uh, the peak of the pandemic a few months ago. Right, okay. So just definitely shows, Daryl, it seems like shifting, kind of people's shifting opinions here in, in this whole pandemic, whereas it felt like people were very adamant for the first year or so. This is different. Yeah, what it's showing is people are adjusting their uh, their opinions. They're, they're becoming more, uh, what they believe, more educated. There's a bit of confusion around certain things. So public health officials uh, and, and politicians are coming back and just, you know, dusting yeah. off the playbook that they used the last time around, there has to be recognition, I would say, that the situation has changed. The, the public opinion environment has changed. It's different this time. Some aspects of what they said before and what they did before are going to work easily, but other parts are going to be a harder sell. Interesting. Daryl, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy. That's Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Some very interesting polling that they have done on the issue of Omicron and the impact here in Canada. So what they found is that 55% of Canadians show support for renewed public health measures, such as, you know, some kind of lockdown or, or some kind of restrictions. The thing is, you go oh, 55%, that's a lot of people, that's, you know, give, that's a majority of Canadians. However, if you look at what was previously the answer to that question, you'll see that it is dropping significantly because the number was 63% in September. Uh, that's a lot more. And back in July, it was nearly 7 out of 10, so almost 70%. So you can see that it's going down, down, down. And I'm sure it does have to do with people being more vaccinated and feeling more comfortable and getting their lives back to normal. But still, a surprisingly large number, 55% of people say they are in support of another lockdown to stop the spread of the Omicron COVID-19 variant. So where do you come in on that? This is Mornings with Simi. First off, just wanted to say, Agnes, you're welcome. Agnes just emailed me to say thank you. Agnes said, I turned on your program a few moments ago and was so glad to hear that I was not losing it, says Agnes. I was partially awake around 4 a.m. or so, definitely felt something, thinking it felt like an earthquake. I talked myself out of it, says Agnes, trying to figure out what it could have been. Agnes now knows, after listening to the show, that yes, 3.6 magnitude earthquake. Some people felt nothing. Some people, like Agnes, definitely felt it. Let me know what side of that you fall on. Simi at cknw.com. Right now, we're going to talk about the concern that's out there for our healthcare system. And I think there's a lot of it because of the potential impact that Omicron is going to have on our healthcare system. So it's timely that Vancouver Coastal Health has launched a new campaign to talk about using the emergency department of your hospital for the right reasons. Why are they doing this? 
Last year during the holiday season, emergency departments in Vancouver Coastal Health had more than 30,000 visits. But get this, of all those visits, one third of them were categorized as non-urgent, meaning they could have been managed by a different part of the system, such as urgent primary care centers or walk-in clinics. So to talk more about this message that they're trying to get out, joining us is Dr. Kendall Ho, professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC and an associate physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Vancouver General Hospital. Dr. Ho, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me here. Has this problem, do you think, gotten worse during the pandemic, like people showing up at emergency rooms when they don't really need to be at the emergency room? I think uh, this this issue has always been there in some ways because it's always challenging for our community members and our friends to develop some unexpected health problems and don't know whether it needs to be treated or not. But I think, as you said, the Omicron has kind of uh, increased the uh, likelihood of that and also with the resources and the frontline uh, uh, availability during holidays, it can make things worse. And that's why we're hoping that with this campaign, we can help our community members to make the right decisions and uh, to use the emergent department or the community resources appropriately. Okay, so then how can you help them make the right decision? What do people need to know? I think there are several uh, uh, venues that our community members can can, uh, access. Number one, we have great family doctors in the whole province. And so uh, knowing your family doctors, especially during the holidays, when they're open, how they can be get a hold of, I think it'll be very important. Also, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health and other health bodies have set up these urgent primary care centers or UPCCs. And so it'll be very important to know where might be your closest UPCCs. So in case you need to have access to a health professional, that you can go to those clinics in case your family doctor is not open. And also in this province, there's always 811. As long as you're close to phone 24-7, you can call 811 line and decide whether a health crisis or health problems need help or not. But most important to me, I think if you, have a, if you feel you're having a serious problem, heart attack, stroke, don't wait. Go to emergency. That's what we set up for. Right. What are some of the issues, Dr. Ho, though, that people are showing up with in the emergency department that you think you know, probably could have been better handled somewhere else? I think sometimes um, for uh, uh, people with, for example, sudden onset of chest pain, it's very understandable why they go to emergency. But sometimes some people say, oh, I've just finished my shift, happen to be, you know, I'm going home before I do, I need to see a doctor, maybe I'll drop by emergency department. So that may be one example. People do that? Kind of convenience. Sometimes it does. Some, some people do, not a lot, some people do. Uh, and also if this person has been having a problem same kind of problem for quite a while, and this problem comes up again, again, that would be another opportunity for them to think about, you know, maybe community resources may be helpful. What about the family doctor situation here, Dr. Ho? Because I know from emails that I've gotten from people, they say some family doctors out there perhaps still aren't back to seeing patients in person or with a full schedule. Yes, I understand that. Our family doctors are working very hard, unfortunately, with the crisis, with the chronic crisis that we're having. And so it's very important for you to know your family doctor. Uh, Understand from their office when they would see patients, usually how long it may take to schedule an appointment, and also off hours, whether they can be get a hold of. Some of the doctors are on call themselves. Some doctors have a group that's on call. Knowing your family doctor and their pattern of practice would be very important at this time. 
So do people come with like a fever, things like that? Like, I guess when it comes to a fever, people think, well, where's the line? When should you stay home? When should you go to the hospital? Yes, that's a, that's a challenge for many of us, for sure. And that's why, you know, uh, especially if it happens in the weekends, for example, or weekend weeknights, right? And so that's why uh, knowing a family doctor, uh, that may be the first line to do. If not, understand where might be urgent care centers that you may access, but you can always call 811. Uh, in 811, there's also nurses and, if necessary, physicians who can help you to try to understand your problem and try to help you navigate our health system to get to the right place. Right. What kind of a difference could this make, Dr. Ho, if if even like 10 or 20% rethought this and, and directed themselves to an urgent care center or a family doctor? What kind of a difference could that make? I think uh, there are three levels of differences. Number one, for the patients and for the community members, they need to get the right answer. It's not necessarily going to the merchant department, but they need the right answers. And so knowing your family doctor, urgent care centers or emergency or 811 can help you with that. Number two, it's, it's very important at this time for us to preserve the emergency department for those who need it. If you have car accidents, if you have heart attacks, boy, this is what we are there for in the emergency department. And we're safe. We have COVID protocols set up so that we can protect our patients so that uh, you'll be safely treated. Um, but also, it is very important with the Omicron, as we discussed earlier, uh, as your newscast discussed earlier on, we need to preserve those capacity for those people who need in-person care. And so both from the front line and also from the health system, we need everybody helping us to make sure that we use the emergency department wisely. Are you worried about that then? Like here, this campaign was planned before Omicron showed up, right? Um, in some ways, yes, I'm worried. But we know that our emergency uh, and our frontline staff and our health system has been taking one wave after the other. And we are able to work with our community members to overcome all those previous waves. Omicron is worrisome, but we can overcome this together. As a community, we work together, as a province, work together, follow our public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and then Coco Sohel, Patty Daly, follow their advice. And we keep our own personal hygiene and get immunized. Those are the things that we can do. Okay, so then, Dr. Ho, what kind of advice should we follow then? If people aren't feeling well and their first instinct is, I'm going to go to emergency, what questions should we ask ourselves? Yeah, I have uh, maybe four tips to suggest. Number one is, again, know your family doctor. Opening hours, how to get advice from family doctors. So get prepared for that. Number two is, uh, know your nearest urgent primary care centers or your nearest hospital emergency department in case you need to go. Number three, keep in mind that there's always 811 next to you if you can't get information from your family doctors or having challenges getting information to answer your questions. And four, if you have serious medical problems, crushing chest pain, you think you had a heart attack, don't wait, call 911 or go straight to emergency department. We're there to help you. Okay, that's good advice. Dr. Ho, thank you so much. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate that. Dr. Kendall Ho is a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC and an associate physician in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Vancouver General Hospital. They have launched this campaign. It's the Winter Care Campaign. It's very timely, too, in light of the concerns about Omicron and the impact that could have on our healthcare system if cases do start to go through the roof. Essentially, their campaign is to ask you to really evaluate 
why you feel that you need to go to the emergency department. You heard him talk about the reasons why you should, yes, immediately go, but they know that some people go and those cases are not urgent. For instance, last year, they had more than 30,000 visits to Vancouver Coastal Health's different emergency departments. And of those, one third of them, one third, 10,000 were categorized as non-urgent, meaning they could have gone somewhere else. They could have waited and gone to a walk-in clinic. They could have made an appointment at their doctor or another doctor or could have gone to an urgent primary care center, which is what those are there for. This is Mornings with Simi. Just going to put it out there. How many places do you hear Anne Murray these days? That is gold. Thank you for that, producer Greg Schott. All right, let's talk about potential restrictions. We know they're coming, probably one o'clock this afternoon. Adrian Dix, Dr. Bonnie Henry will be having that press conference. You'll hear it live on the Jill Bennett show. That is what BC is considering right now. And this is to try and control what is happening with the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Now, I should also mention here that you look at what's happening on the provinces, it's very concerning. Ontario today reporting more than 3,000 cases of COVID-19. That is a just steep, totally vertical climb from where they were even four or five days ago. Same situation in Quebec. So what would work? What kind of restrictions can we put in place that could potentially combat these types of numbers that we are seeing. Joining us now is Dr. Sally Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Are you concerned when you see these numbers? Yes, you put it really well. You take a look at Ontario, UK, Quebec, and the, the rise is just skyrocketing in number of cases. And here we're just at the very beginning of that. We're only seeing in Vancouver Coastal Health that beginning of the Omicron spike. Um, But we do have community transmission and we are hearing of events where um, several people are catching Omicron. And what do you think would work? I've had so many emails, Mm -hmm. you know, from people this morning saying, listen, I've done everything. I'm double vaxxed. I've got the booster dose. Like what? And I do the social distancing. I wear my mask. What more can I do? Right. Well, the boosting is great. So what is different about Omicron is the immunity that we had against Delta and previous variants just is that much lower and it goes down faster with Omicron. And that's why boosting is really important, because if you if you had your latest dose in the last month or so, then it basically primes your immune system, gets those antibodies back in circulation in the bloodstream and um, prevents infection. And so that's why uh, region after region are going for boosters. What, one way to think about it is, you know, even I think Omicron is turning out to be less severe. It's more of a head cold, but it's still landing people in hospital. And so why are we as worried about it? Well, that skyrocketing number of cases is basically um, leading to a pulse of people needing hospital at the same time. It's like a pile up on the highway. That's the issue. And so whatever we can do to reduce the number of people that will need hospitalization in next month, um, the better we can avoid overburdening the hospital system. So that's what boosting really can do. Is it, can, it can protect those people from getting infected and certainly from getting in hospital. Now, I should say that I, I personally am not all that afraid. Of, if I get Omicron, I think... Um, there's many aspects of my immune system. The T cells are, are re- able to recognize Omicron. So there's really good news that other aspects of our immunity, mm-hmm. even if we do get infection, will still stick 
and keep us from getting super sick and dying. But you mentioned over and over again how important then the booster shot is. So is BC rolling these out fast enough? Uh, I This is one of the things that I'm pushing and I have been um, conveying modeling results that say that boosting is the number one thing we can do to really help. Okay, because that's the thing. I think there's a demand for it out there, yeah. but yeah. I, I get emails from people all the time saying, I want it, I want it, but where's my where's my notice? Right, exactly. So I do think, and, and it's not like this is something we can do in January. We have to do it in December in order for that boost to actually raise the immunity level enough to help with an Omicron wave that's hitting us soon. Do you think that is the best thing that we can do? I know there's this, you know, talk about lockdowns and things, but would the lockdown work against Omicron? I mean, it's already here. Uh, that, yeah, so travel restrictions really help when it's not present. So we're we're past that. It's present in our community and certainly across the provinces. Um, within really um, limiting travel within the province can help prevent it from moving from Vancouver to other places. And what that can help do is make make sure that the pile up is not at the same time in every single part of the province. So I do think really restricting travel if you are going to travel. Please do get access, if you can, to one of those rapid antigen tests. You can purchase it online if you can afford it. And I would take those before making your trip within the province and then when you arrive, just to make sure that you don't happen to be carrying Omicron. Right. I think a lot of people would like to do exactly that, as you described Mm. there. But the lack of those rapid tests in this province, have you found that frustrating? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think rapid antigen tests, they're not a, they're certainly not as accurate but what we but um, they are very accurate when we're infectious in that period when we have a lot of virus in us and we're more likely to pass on the virus that's exactly when the rapid antigen tests work best so I do think that they're especially really useful when people use them to prevent themselves from doing something they, that they would otherwise do. Like, I'm okay, I'm not going to go on this trip because this came out positive, or I'm not going to go grocery shopping today because this came out positive. Right, but it seems like this time around, we're, we want to put more control in the uh, an individual person's hands on this. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think that the other thing is with Omicron, it's really a game changer that it is infecting so many people that are vaccinated. Now, a lot of those cases um, are being reported as very mild, but that means it's easily confused with the cold. A lot of the symptoms are different. It's more like a head cold. Um, it appears to be lodging more in the upper respiratory system and in the, in the bronchial tubes, not in the lungs. So you, you have a runny nose, you have a head cold. And so people can mistake COVID. And that's when rapid antigen tests are really useful is to be able to say, no, this isn't a run-of-the-mill head cold. This is Omicron. How, when you look at what's happening out there, like what questions do you still have about this? Oh, <laughs> do you want my laundry list? So it's really a brief challenging. laundry list, yes, a little one. <laughs> it's really challenging. The biggest issue is how severe is it for people who haven't been vaccinated? Because we still have a lot of people in Bank- in British Columbia that are not vaccinated, and I'm worried about them for their health. Um, the the how severe it is for those people who are vaccinated. That is still an open question. Um, so in, in, uh, as I, we have no information at all about deaths, and my hope is that that is um, really, really reduced by vaccination. But that's data we don't have yet. Still more to come. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. 
Appreciate that. That is Dr. Sally Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia, uh, talking about the spread of Omicron and what what could potentially work. We talk about restrictions later today, but as she said, travel restrictions don't work when the thing is already here. Well, that's a thing. It's already here. So now what do we do to try to contain it? Booster shot is very important, as she pointed out. And that's the thing. I get this tremendous sense from people out there that, yeah, I want it. I'll take the booster shot if it means that I can, you know, continue to just do a little bit of what I'm still doing. Give it to me. But that's the thing. Will we hear more about that today? Will we hear about a change strategy in rapid testing? Will that be made available uh, more widely? In Ontario this morning, so they had announced this week that they would make rapid tests available through the liquor stores, which I thought that was kind of a weird choice, as other people think that's a weird choice too. So people thought, all right, I can get rapid tests at the liquor store. Well, they're lining up outside liquor stores this morning. Dozens and dozens of people at different locations of the liquor stores and the tests are not still widely available. So you can tell the demand is there. So what is BC going to do about this? This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard to believe the news when we heard it, right? That the Coquihalla Highway is set to reopen in three days. That is well ahead of the previously announced timeline and the expectations that we had. Now, it will be for commercial vehicles only, and there are a lot of rules about this, but boy, our highway system, people have been working flat out to get that back up and running. So we thought, let's get an update on all of this now. Joining us is Rob Fleming, the Provincial Transportation Minister, who probably hasn't had a solid night's sleep in more than a month now. Good morning. <laughs> Great to be back, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the Coquihalla first of all. Like, are you surprised by how quickly crews have been able to work on this? Yes, I've been continually surprised with uh, information from the field. Um, and it's all been positive. It's all been despite weather, despite, you know, we had those three storms that followed the major storm event. They worked through it all. And, um, you know, the contractors and the workers decided to work as hard as they could get to see whether they could get to what we were able to announce this week, which was reopening before Christmas time. And um, it's staggering, uh, the pace of the work and the quality of the work. Because I was up on site uh, exactly a week ago looking at the reinforcements and what they did to strengthen abutments that had water flowing over it and, and the, the armoring they've done on different parts of um, bridge structures and, and how they treated roads that literally disappeared, like at the Othello section there. And it's just amazing. It's just amazing the engineering concepts and designs that came up with it and then just putting them into action. Uh, I want to talk more about that, but also let me just ask here then, like, where did all the people come from to work on this? Were they pulled from everywhere? Yeah, we, and in a crisis too, we just, you know, we just relaxed rules about, you know, treasury board approvals and sign-offs. It's just, it's just, let's work with the road maintenance contractors who will hire equipment, hire crews. Um, so they came from many different areas. Um, you know, they worked really well with uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline workers as well, who were uh, addressing the same weather event that uh, threatened their infrastructure on that corridor. And, so both teams were trying to get access to the same area, and and and, and in essence, we had you know double the workforce because uh, the pipeline crews and the road builders were were working side by side and working together on on that. And, um, and so you know they they just people wanted to be on this job. Uh, the road builders, 
like a challenge in normal times, um, but they like a crisis and uh, the opportunity to serve British Columbians. That, that's what I got a very strong impression about when I met with some of the workers uh, last week on site. So they were tired. They'd been working very, very long hours away from their families, but they knew what they were doing was really important. They were proud to be part of it. Well, it's amazing. Absolutely astounding what they've been able to do. So what does that mean then? So the Coquihalla, what time on the 20th is that going to open? What do we know about that? Yeah, well, we'll have to update you and your listeners a little closer to the time. But what we've said was no later than Monday afternoon. And depending on some paving and some final work over the next 48 hours, um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to confirm the exact time. And we'll communicate that, obviously, with the trucking industry and the um, the commercial truck driving um, users will be needing to be first to, to queue up there and, and use the Coquihalla on the exact time of reopening. And then after that, for, uh, 24 hours later, um, the Highway 3 will be open to general travel. Okay, so yeah, what do you think that means then for the other highways? Once the Coquihalla can have limited reopening, what does that mean? I think what it's going to mean is that with 3,000 trucks per day going back and forth on the 3,000 trips, I should say, on Highway 3 right now, I think you will see 85 to 90% of that migrate to the to the number 5. It's been pretty harrowing for a lot of truck drivers. They're not used to the number 3. They want to get back on the number 5, which they're used to. And the number 5 is going to be a lot faster. So even with um, the damage it's sustained, the, the repairs are of such quality that there are a couple of areas where we lose lanes and go from 4 to 2, and speed limits will be reduced from down to probably 50 or 60 kilometers at most. And, but there's a lot of open four-lane road that'll be 100K or whatever the posted mm-hmm. limit is. So it's only going to add 45 minutes to delivery, which is a big difference from the number three, which is mountainous, steep, windy, and, and has been much slower. Okay, so that's happening. We know that. That is great. What about Highway 8? Highway 8 has sustained significant damage, and we haven't been able to give an update on exactly how we're going to proceed. You know, we've literally lost big chunks of the highway into the Nicola River. So we'll have a more fulsome update on that in the new year. There's a lot of design work and engineering, and there's a commitment and meetings between the province, the federal government, and Indigenous communities um, on that corridor. So we're, we're really taking a tripartite approach with the federal and Indigenous governments making decisions together on how we rebuild that. Um, Highway 1 through the Fraser Canyon is still looking good for a mid-January reopening. It'll be similar to the Coquihalla, like it won't be the same highway, but it will have temporary fixes that allow it to be usable. Right. You talked about the design phase of this, and I'm so curious about that is how do we prevent or, you know, hopefully prevent something like this from happening again? What are we doing in the design phase of fixing these highways that will change things? Yeah, so like for these kinds of storm events, it's going to be have to be a vastly superior drainage system. Um, in some cases, you know, it shouldn't be culverts, it should be bridges. Um, it uh, You'll have to look at um, the upslope conditions. I mean, look, we've planted a billion trees over the last three years uh, to respond to the changing hydrology that wildfires have brought um to the province but there's going to need to be more thinking on how we how we restore the land um to protect our infrastructure as well so there's going to be a lot of different things to consider so what kind of a timeline do you foresee for that is that more of a longer term project for 
uh, for for Coquihalla specifically? You mean the, the permanent or just, or just, yeah, in, just general? in general? Like how how can we fix it yeah. so we know these kinds of problems can be yeah. avoided? Yeah, so th- that's been a very good discussion with the federal government over the last uh, few weeks. We we actually have a, you know more than a decade of thinking with a couple of different engineering think tanks at the University of Victoria and other post secondary institutions and our ministry on exactly this: what more resilient infrastructure looks like in an age of of climate uh, extreme weather events so the thinking and the principles um and some of you know what what engineering standards should look like on a forecast basis as opposed to looking backwards 100 years has already been done it it needs what needs to be changed and i think this can be done quickly is policies including um funding policies uh, you know, to, to account for the higher standards that we're going to need if our infrastructure is going to be built to uh, survive these kinds of storm events. Right. I bet you thought that being the transportation minister would be a little bit quieter, perhaps, than being the education <laughs> minister? <laughs> uh, perhaps. Uh, I mean, I think I was on your program uh, in the early first six months of the year. We were talking about Broadway SkyTrain, and then we had the announcement yeah. in July about the Surrey Langley SkyTrain and the Massey Tunnel, and then yeah, so uh, we're we're building and now we're rebuilding. Um, well, yeah. that's the way that's the way BC always goes, right? So thank you very much for joining us with all those details this morning. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for your coverage on a wild topsy turvy year, and oh. uh, to you and your listeners, and have a happy and safe holiday season. Well, and the same to you. Thank you so much. That's Rob Fleming, the provincial transportation minister, with an update on the highways that need serious help, where the help is coming, and the plans for the future.